Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. But I want to just do a little bit of review because sometimes you can forget to see the forest for the trees and we've been kind of trekking through judges. I want to go back and I want to just do a little bit of review on the judges we've looked at so far. So if you go back to chapter 3, Othniel was the first judge. And if you remember, there was nothing negative about him at all. He was endowed with power from the Holy Spirit. God had set him apart. He won the victory. There was nothing negative said about Othniel. So the first judge is the prototype deliverer of Israel. Okay, the next judge is Ehud. Remember Ehud? He's the left-handed, right-handed, or the right-handed, left-handed man. He's, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, but he was a left-handed assassin. Um, and so that was him. Then you had Deborah and Barak. Deborah was basically um, the, peop- the, the one that people came to for deliverance. And then she said, a woman's going to get glory, not you, Barak. And he goes and he routes the enemy. And then if you remember what ends up happening, um, Jael puts the tent spike through the head of uh, king, uh, the, the king. And so that's what happened in chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 6, 7, and 8, we looked at Gideon. And if you remember, Gideon started out kind of interesting. He was hiding out. The Lord said, you're a mighty valiant man. He says, who, me? And then he does the whole, um, I'm, not, I'm from the least of the tribes. And then God pairs it down to 300, and they defeat the enemy. But then if you remember, um, Gideon does not end well. He basically sets himself up as a king, and the people... He gets all the jewelry from the people and creates the ephod, and basically it becomes a snare to Israel. Okay, Now, Gideon's son was named who? Abimelech, whose name means my God is king. That's what we looked at last week. We looked at chapter 9, where Abimelech actually became a cruel king. And we had that whole... um, the youngest son, Jotham, goes and hides out in the hill country and he gives the parable of the trees and basically they end up destroying each other with fire and you've got the really major problem of Gideon's son Abimelech being a wicked, actually king to rule over the people. This is even before the kingship. Okay, So we come to chapters 10, 11, and 12. And actually, we're just going to start in verse 6 because chapters 10, verses 1 through 5, there are two minor judges named Tola and Jair. And there's not a lot I can teach on that because basically they judged Israel and there's not much there. So we're going to look at verses 6 through 16. So we're going to start Judges chapter 10, verses 6 through 16. The kindness and severity of of God. So let's read this. The people of Israel did what was evil again in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. 
And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. I want to stop right there. Does this not sound familiar? Go back to chapter 3, verse 12. Let's read chapter 3, verse 12. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon and the king of Moab against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay, chapter 3, verse 12. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Broken record, right? Okay, go to chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian seven years. Okay. Chapter 10, verse 6, what we're at tonight. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now there's an expansion here. Serve the Baals, the Asheroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. These are all the pagan Canaanite nations around them. So they're listed there. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Verse 7, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he, that is God, sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We've sinned against you, because we've forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Okay. What we're going to see in chapters 10, 11, and 12 is the Ammonites oppressing Israel. In chapters 13 through 16, we are going to see the Philistines oppressing Israel. So for the next, what is that, six chapters, you're going to have two major Canaanite oppression of Israel, the Ammonites, the Philistines. And what is Israel's presumption about God in verse 14? <laughs> what does God say? What's the, pattern in, in, what's the pattern in Judges? 
They get oppressed. They cry out. And we've seen all along, it's not a cry out of, of true repentance. The Lord raises up a deliverer. The deliverer or the judge saves them. They have peace, and then they go right back into the pattern again. This time, what does God tell them to do? They're like, save us, save us, God, get us out of this oppression. What does God say? You like your God so much? Go ask those gods to help you. Now, that seems kind of a little harsh from God, don't you think? Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. But think about it for a moment. Where is Israel putting their trust? In false gods. And what's God doing? He's saying, if you're going to put your trust in false gods, let those gods save you. See how they do. Dale Ralph Davis makes a great comment. Again, I love his commentary. Um, he, he has a really good way of, he's got a really good sense of humor, but this is what he says. There's a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. <laughs> okay. That's a strong way of putting it, right? So let me ask you a question. Is Israel a prodigal coming home? Or are they a whore coming home to their husband to security until they can find another lover? Which one is it? Okay, I want you to think about that there's a reason why the Bible uses the term. It's a strong word. We don't, we don't like to use the word whore, okay? What comes to your mind when you think of, I mean, it's, it is kind of a... Um, it's kind of an offensive word. It's kind of a harsh word. But the Bible uses it. And it uses it in the context of the nation of Israel acting that way. Because who's Israel's true husband? Yahweh, the Lord God. And so Israel, as a bride to their true God, is going to be committing spiritual adultery, which is as the Bible calls it, whoring or prostituting themselves or going after false gods. In other words, what they are trying to find is what I call a functional Savior. Now, what in the world is a functional Savior? Let's look at those words. What's a Savior? And don't give me that Sunday school answer, Jesus, no. What is a Savior? Just the, ver the, the noun Savior without Jesus in the picture. What is a Savior? Something that delivers you, saves you, gives you security. Okay. What is a functional Savior? What? Okay. So here's what I'm saying. We would never say, at least I would never say, and I know you would never say, that we're atheists or that we are idolaters. If I went around this room and said, hey, are you guys atheists? You'd be like, no, I believe in God. Are you an idolater? No, I believe in Jesus. We'd never outright say I'm an idolater, I'm an atheist. But what do we do? We often look to other things to give us what? Satisfaction, security, we experiment or we indulge in other things besides God to truly save us. So a functional Savior 
is just another term for an idol. You will turn to anything you think will give you comfort, security, satisfaction, pleasure, and you will grab onto that, you will hold on to that, you will find that at all costs. Now, that's a good thing when it's Jesus, right? That's what we're supposed to do, right? When it's not Jesus, it becomes idolatry. So what's Israel doing? Look at the list of gods they have up there. You've gone after the gods of Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, Philistines, all these different gods. You've, Israel, you're married to me, Yahweh, the Lord. And yet, you're trying to find security, you're trying to find safety, you're trying to find comfort, you're trying to find pleasure, you're trying to find joy, you're trying to find happiness, you're trying to find meaning and purpose and all these other gods. And what are you finding out? You're still not happy. You're still being oppressed. You're still not finding that satisfaction. As a matter of fact, you're crying out for deliverance. And what does God say to them? If you've put so much stock in those false gods to give you what you want, why don't you cry out to them to give you what you want? What do you want them to do? Save you. Can they do it? No. But what do we fool ourselves into thinking? I can find satisfaction, pleasure, joy, meaning, and all these other things to give me salvation, to give me hope, to give me purpose, and it's not in Jesus. And when you do that, you are making these other things a Savior, even though you wouldn't say it's a Savior, you're making them a Savior to take the place of only Jesus. Now, are there warnings and scriptures in presuming upon God's kindness? Yeah, there are. Okay? So let's turn in the New Testament into the book of Acts, and let's read a story in the New Testament. Keep your, keep your finger in Judges, or you can swipe back, or however you, however you do that. Um, let's go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 13 through 23. Acts chapter 8. Okay. I actually start back in verse 9. Okay. This is an interesting story about Simon Magus, or Simon the Magician. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Okay, now stop right there because this is where this text gets a little bit difficult. Verse 13, what does it say about Simon? He believed and was baptized. Hold, hold that thought. Because at first glance you're thinking, is he a Christian? Let me ask you a question. Can somebody, quote-unquote, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, say they believe in Jesus, and even get baptized and not truly be saved? Yes. 
Okay? So there's a little bit of ambiguity here. We're going to have to look at the rest of the story. And there's some debate and scholarship as to what really is happening here. And so we can't be dogmatic because we have a verse here saying he believed and was baptized. Now, was he genuinely saved? Let's see the fruit and see if there's true repentance. Okay, let's go up verse 14. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So what is, what's Simon's background? How did he make his living? He was a magician. He was the David Copperfield of his day, okay? Or, or David Blaine or whoever you have. So he probably made a lot of money by doing magic tricks or whatever. Okay. He gets, quote unquote, saved and baptized. And what happens? The two top dogs, who, who comes down? Peter and John, okay? That the two top apostles come and they lay hands upon the Sumerians because they had not yet fully received the Holy Spirit. That's a discussion for another day. And then what does Simon do? That's amazing power. He wants to pay the apostles to get that power. Okay? Which is, what's he wanting? You guys have the mojo. I used to have the mojo. I want more mojo, so I'm going to pay you for the mojo. You understand what I'm saying with the mojo? Okay. Now, look at what Peter says. Verse uh, 20. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you, for I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing what you said might come upon me. What does Peter say? You're in the, you're in the bonds of iniquity. You need to repent. Now, does Simon repent? Look closely. Does Simon repent? What does he say? He goes to Peter and says, pray for me that this won't happen to me. Now, just one thing. To Roman Catholics out there that believe Peter's the Pope. Peter's not the Pope. So if Simon asks Peter to pray for him, What's Simon basically saying? Is Simon going directly to the Lord himself and asking for forgiveness? Okay. So Simon is an interesting, there's an interesting story here. Was he saved? Was he not saved? What's going on here? There's a lot of debate and scholarship, but what's the one thing that he did? He presumed upon the Lord. What's Israel doing? They're presuming upon the Lord. What do they think? God has saved us in the past. He's duty-bound to save us now. Let me ask you a question. Is God duty-bound to do anything? He's not duty-bound to do anything that's in conflict with His nature. Now, because His nature is holy, He will act out of His nature according to the holiness of His nature. But let me ask it another way. 
is God in our debt to act the way we want him to act? Just because God had saved them in the past, is he obligated to do it now? And what is Israel thinking? We've been down there, done this pattern. We know the routine. We're going to go after other gods. We're going to get oppressed. We're going to cry out. And then when we cry out, that's when God's going to send a judge. And what does God, how does God break the pattern this time? Um, I'm not going to play the game anymore. You get your own false gods to help you. Now, here's the question you got to ask. Go back to Judges for a moment. Same thing with Simon Magus. The, the, the baffling question with Simon is, did he truly repent? It's left kind of mysterious. The question you've got to ask in the book of Judges is, does Israel genuinely repent? And we can probably safe to say that whenever we see Israel acting like they're repenting, is it true repentance? Now look at verse 15. Go back to Judges chapter 10. Look at verse 15. Right after God says, go cry out to your own gods, let them save you in your time of distress. Look at verse 15. The people of Israel said to the Lord, we've sinned. Okay, so that sounds good, right? We, we were confessing sin. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. That sounds pretty good. Until you come to the end of verse 16. And the ESV says, the Lord became impatient over the misery of Israel. Does anybody else have a different translation besides impatient? No longer endured, no longer endured what? The of Israel. He no longer endured the misery of Israel. And what? He could okay, he could bear Israel's misery. Okay, so here's the question. What does that mean? First of all, there's two major views on what is the misery of Israel that God couldn't bear in you. Because if you read that, what does it make you sound? What does it make it first sound like? God's having sympathy on them, so he's going to act. But the word there is impatient. God got impatient with their misery. So which, did God sympathize and get tender with Israel? Or is he mad at them because of their pattern? This is where it's difficult. Let me give you, there's two views on this, okay? And again, when we come to these narrative passages in the Old Testament, if you remember maybe a few weeks ago, I talked about how to interpret Hebrew narrative, that we've got to be very careful that we don't allegorize, we don't moralize, uh, that there are some nasties. Remember we talked about nasties in the Bible that you can't quite... We can't be dogmatic on some of these difficult statements. So when you look at scholarship, when you look at what the scholars say, there are two predominant views. So let me give you the two views of what they believe this means. The first is what, what, what maybe it sounds like at first. The first view is God was moved to compassion over their sin and decided to intervene with grace because their repentance was genuine. They genuinely repented. They genuinely returned. God responded in kindness and said, okay, um, I'm going to deliver you. That's view number one. View number two is God saw through their false repentance and was impatient to the point of not intervening to save them, 
but to cause them to be overtaken by pagan nations. Those are two diametrically opposed responses, right? One, God is sympathetic and He acts. The other one, God is mad and He doesn't. So which one is it? Which is correct? Well, let me give you some observations here, and let's, try, let's, let's make some deductions and see if we can, if we can make a, an educated guess. Okay, number one, there is no promise of deliverance to negate the statement in verse 13. When God says, I will save you no more, there's no promise of deliverance where God says, I, I will save you. It just says, He became impatient over their misery. What happens next in the story of Jephthah, what we're going to look at tonight? God is markedly absent, and we never see that God raises up Jephthah as a judge. So this, this next story lends credibility that God's going to not intervene positively for Israel. Okay. The word impatient in Hebrew literally means the soul is short, expressing frustration and anger. It's a frustration that God has. Okay, so that's, that Hebrew word can mean frustration. The word misery, does anybody else have a different translation besides misery? It's the Hebrew word amal. It can either mean, this is where it gets, this, sometimes Hebrew is hard. Okay. I'd much rather work in the Greek text because it's a lot more precise. And there, but Hebrew is kind of a it's, a, it's a word picture language, and sometimes words have different meanings depending on context. It's a little bit harder to translate sometimes than the Greek. The word amal in Hebrew can mean two things. It can mean pain or trouble. God saw their pain and trouble. Or it could mean hard work or effort. It could mean that they were trying to win favor with God by effort, by false repentance. So misery could be they're in pain, or misery could be they're trying to work for God's favor. There's a better word for distress or misery in the Hebrew text. It's the Hebrew word sahra that would capture the misery or hardship of Israel as better having compassion on them. So the, the, the argument would be like if, if, if it was where God wanted to intervene in compassion, there's a better word for misery that could have been used. In the end, you're like, what's the point of all this, Pastor Sean? You're getting into some deep Hebrew here. What's the point? In the end, the wording is ambiguous to leave us with no clear-cut answer. That's why scholars are divided. Without being dogmatic, I hesitantly without being dogmatic, would probably opt for the second interpretation that God is impatient over their continued attempts to fake repentance. And He's going to just give them over to what they deserve. And so the question then becomes, did somebody have a question? Oh, I thought I heard something. Oh, somebody's got a micro. Oh, that's all right. Like, I knew somebody was talking back there. It's the, it's the walkie-talkie. So here's a question. How can God both be severe in discipline and yet compassionate in His mercy? 
So let me ask you a question. Just because Israel sins, do they stop being God's people? No. Just because Israel sins, does that mean God gets them off the hook and they don't ever have to suffer for their sins? Just because they're God's people and God has entered into covenant with them, does God continue to love them? Okay, okay so you've got two attributes of God. And this is, a, this is a, a something that you, you may need to wrestle with. How can God express wrath or judgment at the same time that He expresses mercy and grace? Because what you'll see, there's two extremes in Christianity. You've got the wrath and judgment extreme where you've got a lot of fundamentalist or legalistic, legalistic people, and all they focus on is God is an angry God, and He's ready to thump you, and God is a God of wrath, and you better get your act together because you've got to be afraid of God. And they always focus on the wrath of God, hellfire preaching. And that's the only attribute of God they ever talk about is His wrath, His wrath, His wrath, His judgment. Okay, question, is God a God of wrath and judgment? Okay. At the same time, is He also a God of mercy and grace? So the other extreme, you probably don't see this as much. This is where you really see the other extreme. The other extreme in Christianity is God's just a God of love and you can do whatever you want and God would never send anybody to hell and God would never discipline anybody and it's just kind of live however you want because after all, we're all God's children and He just really looks at your heart and it doesn't really matter how you live. Let's just all, God's just love. Okay. You probably hear more. Who hears that more than that? Which one do you hear more of, do you think? The, 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 this one? or the, So the, the, the free-flowing, let's all just... Okay, so you've got a dichotomy or an apparent dichotomy in the Bible. And the question is, okay, I look at the Bible and I see God being a God of justice, a God of wrath, a God of, of anger that disciplines and punishes. But at the same time, I see a God of mercy and a God of love. And some people would say, I can't, I can't put those two attributes of God together in my head and wrap my mind around it. Because it seems like if God was loving, He wouldn't be wrathful. And it seems like if God was wrathful, He wouldn't be loving. So how can He be those two things at the same time? Well, let me ask you, what is the greatest expression where both of those two things meet together? The cross. The cross. What happened on the cross? The old Puritans would say this. They would say wrath and grace, and their word would be kissed. That's kind of the way they put it. Wrath and grace kissed at the cross. God's wrath and judgment against sin and God's mercy and grace towards sinners met together, married, kissed, came together at the cross. So on the cross, do you see God's wrath against sin? At the same time, do you see God's love for sinners? Okay, yes, you do. Let me give you a verse here, and we, don't, we won't have time to dive into this verse. It's probably one of the most important verses in the New Testament, at least in the book of Romans, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones called it the Acropolis of the Bible. Um, Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all of, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's focus on that last phrase. God is both the just and the justifier. So let me put the word just under wrath and mercy, and let me put the word justifier under mercy and grace. Question. If God is going to be a just God, does he not have to punish sin and express wrath and and judgment against sin? If you say no, then you're saying God's not just. Even you as a sinful human want a universe where there's justice. So how much more can God just wink at sin and brush it on the carpet and say, let bygones be bygones? The wages of sin is death. And so God has to be just. So, okay, the question then becomes, okay, if God is just and he expresses wrath and judgment by pouring that out on Jesus on the cross, what happens to people? Because if God is just and he pours his wrath out against sin, who are sinners? You and me. What do we deserve? Wrath and justice. On the cross, where does God pour out the wrath and justice? Does He pour it out on people? No, He pours it out on Jesus in our place as a substitute. So God can be just by punishing Jesus, but at the same time, He can be the justifier. He can declare us not guilty. He can forgive our sins. He can show mercy and grace because Christ took that in our place. So in the one act of the cross, God can both punish sin and show mercy in the person of Jesus Christ. Who deserves wrath? We do. Who gets wrath? Jesus. How do we avoid the wrath? We trust in Jesus. When we trust in Jesus, his righteousness is given to us as a gift. Now, I've said this before. God will pour out his wrath in one of two ways. Number one, his wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And all who are connected to Jesus by faith will never experience wrath. But let me ask you a second question. Is not hell an expression of wrath? Those that suffer eternal hell will be recipients of God's wrath because they did not trust in Jesus Christ and have that righteousness. Okay? So it's a pretty deep passage of Scripture, and I think I've explained it, but let me just give you the fill in the blank, or let me give you the things so you, those of you that are obsessive compulsive don't think I skipped over some stuff. Okay? When Jesus died on the cross, he propitiated God's wrath against sin. Okay, we talked about that. The cross shows us two realities. God can be just in that he has to punish sin. Yet, at the same time, God can be the justifier of the ungodly who has faith in Christ. That is, God can credit our sins to Jesus and his perfect record to us through faith so that we stand not guilty before the Father. The bottom line in the cross, God's full display of justice and wrath was poured out on Jesus as our substitute so that he could still be just in punishing sin while at the same time justifying sinners in his amazing mercy. Okay? Now, let's go into chapter 11. Because we're left kind of with a cliffhanger at the end of chapter 10, 
Is God going to save him or is God not? Is God going to intervene or is God not? Is God going to discipline his people or is God not? Now, based upon what we've seen in Judges so far, what has God done? Well, the first half of Judges, he delivered them. Last week, God let things just kind of go and the people ended up being judged and disciplined by taking it out upon each other. Now there's going to be Jephthah. And we're going to find out what Jephthah does and how he at this point becomes the epitome of the worst judge in Israel's history. Okay? Now remember, Abimelech was not a judge. He was a self-appointed king last week that acted as a tyrant. So Israel's been without a God-appointed leader. Who was the last God-appointed leader? Gideon. Gideon's son was not a God-appointed leader. He took the throne and became a tyrant king. Now you've got Jephthah, and let's find out if he's God's appointed king. Not king. God's appointed judge, or is he something different? So let's read verses 1 through 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Who else was the son of a prostitute? We looked at last week. Abimelech. Remember, remember Gideon had a concubine? He was the son of Gideon's concubine? Okay, so this is how we're... This is, so if you're reading this narrative, you're like, that caught me off guard. That's how he's introduced. Jephthah the Gilead was a mighty warrior. He was the son of a prostitute. Sounds like a country song, right? <laughs> Jephthah the Gilead was a son of a prostitute. Or something like that. I mean, it's like, okay, out of the blue, here we go. This is how he's introduced. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah, and he went out with them. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. Okay. Does he sound like a likely candidate to lead Israel? What's the deal with Jephthah? What's the problem here? He's the son of a prostitute. And what do his brothers say to him? You, for lack of a better term, you're our bastard brother. 
pardon the French, but that's what the word means. You're our illegitimate brother. Get out of here. They, they kick him out of the house. He becomes somewhat of a fugitive. And where does he go live? In the land of Tob. And what does he surround himself with? Worthless fellows. Okay. So he's the son of a prostitute. He gets kicked out of his house by his brothers. He goes and lives as a, as a refugee, as a fugitive, and he, he gathers a bunch of worthless fellows around him. And yet, what do we find out the first thing about him? What's the very first thing we find out? And before we find out that he's the son of a prostitute, he was a mighty warrior, probably the best warrior around. And what do the people want from him? They're getting distressed by the Ammonites. And what do they think? Oh, I remember Jephthah. He was a mighty warrior. Let's go get him and let's have him be our what? Our head, our leader, our king. Now, what did we just look at last week about a king? Did that go well for Israel? Abimelech was a terrible man. And the people have not learned anything. And so they go after Jephthah and they say, we want you to be our king. Now, interestingly, you could go to 1 Corinthians 1, 27. God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what's weak in the world to shame the strong. But here's the question. That 1 Corinthians passage says God chose these things. Do you see anywhere here where God anointed Jephthah? God chose Jephthah? He's God's man. The people just come to him and say, you're a mighty warrior, will you save us? And what does he say? Well, I'll kind of bargain with you. If, if, you know, if I come and, and God gives me deliverance, I'll, I'll be your king. I'll be your leader. So they said, okay. All right. Jephthah is a master of words. He's a smooth talker. So let's, let's look at verses 12 through 28 and see Mr. Smooth Talker. You ready? Then Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said, What do you have against me that you've come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the Ammonites answered the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel on coming up from Egypt took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok and to the Jordan, now therefore restore it peaceably. Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the Ammonites and said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up from Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Israel then sent messengers to the king of Edom saying, Peace, let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. And they also sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they journeyed through the wilderness and went around the land of Edom in the land of Moab, and arrived on the east side of the land of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. But they did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was the boundary of Moab. Israel then sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. And Israel said to him, Please let us pass through your land to our country. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through this territory. So Sihon gathered all his people together and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated them. So Israel took possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. And they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan. So then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. 
and are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Shemosh your God gives you to possess? And are and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess. Now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel, or did he ever go to war with him? While Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Aor and its villages, and all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Now, what in the world's going on? What's the Ammonites saying? We're going to take over you, Israel. And what does Jephthah say? Let me give you a history lesson going all the way back to Moses' time. Let me, let me go back 300 years. During that time when Moses was our leader, the Israelites did not invade the Moabites. They did not invade the Ammonites. They asked permission. They asked these kings, can we pass through peaceably? And when they went and asked these kings, what did the kings do? The kings attacked Israel and God delivered them. And so in verse 26, his main point in giving this history lesson is, listen, king, we Israelites have lived here for 300 years, so why are you raising a stink now? It's been our land for 300 years. It's rightfully ours, which technically it was. It's the promised land. God had given it to them. So Jephthah's negotiating tactic is, listen, why are you bringing this up now? You've had 300 years to deal with this, and now you're coming against us. Let me give you a history lesson and show you, show you how you have no right to do this. Now, what's the point? Does the king listen to Jephthah? I could care less about your history lesson. I want your land. Thank you very much. So the king did not listen. Okay, now let's go into the heart of the story, which is probably what you're familiar with, the tragic vow of Jephthah. So let's go into verse 29 through 40. I want you to pay attention to how the writer of Judges masterfully gives us insight into Jephthah. What is Jephthah known for? His words. He's a negotiator. He's always trying to get out of trouble with his words. His words either get him in trouble, his words get him out of trouble. Let's see how these words work in verses 29 through 40. As we will see, his words are his downfall. Okay, so verses 29 through 40. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurorah to the neighborhood of Mineth, twenty cities, and as far as Abel Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, anytime you see and behold in Hebrew narrative, 
you need to pay attention to the and behold because that means something's going to happen that needs to grab your attention. And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble to me, for I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in that year." What's the vow? What does Jephthah vow to the Lord? Look at verse 30. Look at it very carefully. I think the ESV gives you some clues there, how to read it in the Hebrew. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give me the Ammonites into my hand, whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in, the place from, in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's and I will offer it. Whatever comes out, I will offer it. It. Now, let's just talk about pronouns for a moment. What's an it? Is an it a person? He, she, me, I, you. Those are all people, right? What's an it? Can we say a non-person? So the text is somewhat ambiguous here. Do you think Jephthah is making a vow assuming that his daughter's going to come out? What do you think he might expect? The family dog, maybe? A sheep? Does he expect an animal? Here's the thing. We really don't know, but his vow says what? When I come back, if the Lord gives me victory against the Ammonites, when I come back home, the first thing that comes out to meet me, I'm going to offer to the Lord as a burnt offering. I've made the vow, I've made the promise, I can't take it back. Whatever comes out, I've got to burn it to the Lord. And who comes out? His only daughter. His one and only daughter. Now, things we know about the law. Here's, I keep telling you every week, and we're going to talk about it again. Who is absent in the book of Judges? The priests. What were the priests supposed to be doing? Teaching people God's law, the law of Moses, the law that they received in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the law. What does the law tell us? Okay, you probably know this without even going back and looking at the Old Testament. Burn offerings. Two things we know about the law. 
Burnt offerings were only reserved for what? Animals. So for him to make a vow about burning an offering to the Lord, who knows, maybe he thought it was an animal, but he shouldn't have made it. And number two, we also know this. Human sacrifice by burning in a fire was an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 18.21 You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech. Molech was a false god. And so profane the name of your Lord or your God. I am the Lord. Only animals are to be burned. Humans are not to be burned. That's what the pagans did. Human sacrifice, child sacrifice. Some people call this a rash vow. He made it and he didn't know what he was thinking. Here's the problem. Does the narrator give us the inner thoughts of Jephthah while he's making this vow? We don't know. Yes, Glenn. Okay, great point. So those of you that are watching on Facebook Live, Glenn, one of our elders, said that it seems like what Jephthah's doing is more in line with the pagan gods and what their expectation was of burning God. So that's a huge point. What have we been saying all along about Israel? They have become thoroughly, what's the word we've been using? They be, have become thoroughly, for lack of a better term, canonized. Or, if you don't like Canaanized, paganized. If you eat, drink, breathe false gods all around you, what are you going to start to think, eat, breathe? What's going to be your worldview? False gods. Even if you are an Israelite. We really don't know, but it could be that Jephthah is so much a product of his culture that the vow he makes is not even... He doesn't even know what, the, what Leviticus says. Okay? All we know is he made the vow and his daughter. Do we know the daughter's name? Okay. One of the interesting things about the book of Judges is sometimes these women show up and they don't have names. And I think that's purposeful to show how sometimes women are treated in the book of Judges. This is very, very cruel. You thought the other stuff we looked at was gory and, and, and really gross. This is the epitome of what we would call a nasty. She's nameless. But you can picture in your mind, she comes out like any young girl would do. She comes out with tambourines. She dances. Who's her daddy? Israel's greatest warrior. And just like a proud daughter would do, we don't know how old she is, but we know she's not married. So let's, let's pretend like she's 13, 14. She comes out. The first thing she wants to do when she sees her dad is she comes bursting out the door and she's singing for him and she's enjoying that her dad is home. He wants to, she wants to greet her dad because he's the valiant warrior. What does Jephthah do? He acts in self-centered brutality. There's no tenderness with his daughter. There is only accusation. What does verse 35 tell us? It's chilling. What does he say in verse 35? Let's read it. 
As soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes. Alas, my daughter, you, you've brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble to me. For I've opened my mouth to the Lord, and I can't take back my mouth. You're responsible for this. If you hadn't come out, if you hadn't do this, it's all your fault. I had to open my big mouth and you had to come out. That's, is that any tenderness as a father to his daughter? And what does he say to her? I got to kill you. I got to burn you. And what does she say? I'm a virgin. I've never been married. I'm never going to get married. I'm going to die. Can you give me a couple months? Let me take my girlfriends and let's go up in the mountains and we're just going to cry for two months. And look at verse 39. He murders his own daughter. And notice how it's written in verse 39. Very mechanical. At the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he made. Five simple words. He fulfilled his vow and sacrificed his own daughter, his one and only daughter, in the fire. Now, what, here's the question. What should have Jephthah done? Okay, he made the vow. He had two things he could have done. Here's number one. Remember, he's thoroughly ignorant of the law. He's thoroughly ignorant of the Bible. He doesn't know these things because the priests in Israel aren't teaching the people. Number one, he could have brought the curse upon himself and broken the vow and spared his daughter. He could say, I made this vow to the Lord, but I'm going to break the vow. And if I break the vow against the Lord, may the curses come upon me. I will take the punishment. I will spare you, daughter. I will die in your place. And I will sacrifice myself. Because the punishment for breaking a vow is, is death. I will take that upon myself. I will be the noble father. I will protect your virginity. I will protect you as my, as my only daughter. I will invoke these curses upon me for breaking the vow. I'll break the vow and, t- and take what punishment God brings. He could have done that. Or, if he would have known the law, he could have at least appealed to the Mosaic law about vows, and he could have paid 30 shekels to a priest to compensate for the life of his daughter. Leviticus 27, 1-4. If he would have known the law, if there would have been a priest teaching in Israel, if there were spiritual leaders in Israel that were teaching the people and discipling the people, he may have known this. Leviticus 27, 1-4. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. Now the law is somewhat ambiguous, but at least there's a law saying if somebody makes a vow according to a person, he can go pay. So at least Jephthah could have said, you know what, there's a law in Israel that says I can go to the priest and pay 30 shekels and maybe I can just try that. And at least I can go to the priest and and at least I can go to a spiritual leader and find out what I need to do. This is a story in the Bible 
where a wicked man kills his one and only son out of brutality. Now let's compare that to another story in Genesis chapter 22 where God asks Abraham to take Isaac up on Mount Moriah and to sacrifice his one and only son. There's some amazing contrast between these two stories. We don't have time to go back and read it, but hopefully you remember the story. Abraham takes his son Isaac. They go up to Mount Moriah. Abraham binds Isaac on the wood. He's about ready to plunge the knife, and then the angel of the Lord says, don't do it. And he turns around and he sees a ram in the thicket instead, and the Lord provides a sacrifice. So let's look at the, let's look at the similarities and the differences. In the story of Abraham, the purpose of the sacrifice was to test Abraham. Jephthah's purpose was to test God. How did this all start? God, if you do this for me, then I will do this for you. Jephthah's putting God to the test. Abraham is the father of the promise. Isaac is the son of the promise. Who's Jephthah? Is he the son of the promise? No, he's the son of a harlot. God spoke and interrupted the sacrifice of Isaac and provided a ram as a substitute. But he's eerily silent in Jephthah's vow. Abraham's act, number four, confirmed his faith as the father of the faithful and where God reaffirmed his covenant, while Jephthah's act confirmed his faithlessness and signaled the end of his lineage. Here's the telling fact about this entire episode. God is silent. How does chapter 11 end? It ends with an act of pagan brutality. There's no commentary where it says Jephthah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. It doesn't say Jephthah will be judged. It just ends. And God's been silent. Who's done all the talking in this chapter? Jephthah. Who's been silent in this chapter? And God's silence speaks volumes. Here's the thing about Jephthah. He's a poignant picture of a man who knew enough about God. He talks a little bit about God here, doesn't he? He could talk a great game. He talked such a great game that he knew 300 years of Israel's history, didn't he? I mean, he knew enough of his history, he knew enough of his Bible to go to the king and say, listen, let me give you a history lesson on God's dealings with our people. So he had a little bit of biblical knowledge. He had a lot of head knowledge. But yet he's about as pagan as you can get. He nullified God's law and in brutality and self-centeredness killed his own daughter. Now, let me ask you a question. This is where it gets very difficult. Does, because God is silent, does that mean God approves of what happened? Absolutely not. His, the silence of God shows that Israel is in the deepest part of depravity. Sometimes God gives people over to what they want. 
This is called the passive wrath of God. There's the active wrath of God like you see in Sodom and Gomorrah where God rains down fire or you see these visible manifestations of God's wrath. But there's also what's called the passive wrath. Here's the passive wrath of God. Sometimes, and again, God's sovereign over this. It's in His timetable and how He determines to do that. Sometimes God gives sinners over to their depravity as a way to show His wrath. Instead of immediately raining fire down in judgment, God simply gives people what their lustful hearts desire and then lets them deal with the eventual terrible consequences of those actions. Is Jephthah going to live with the consequences of his actions? Did God intervene and stop? No, God was silent. Now, we don't want to read too much into this, but Romans chapter 1 tells us that God gave them over. And so it could be that in the story of Jephthah, God silenced God's hands off as Israel. You've sunk so low into spiritual depravity and idolatry. And if that's what you want, Israel, if that's what you want, Jephthah, I'm hands off. And when God is hands off and God is silent and people act upon their sin, what ends up happening? They commit sin and live with the consequences of that sin. Now, again, God's sovereign, and sometimes He can intervene, and sometimes He doesn't. But the Bible does teach the passive wrath of God. Now, let's move into chapter 8. And let's remember that Jephthah's a mighty warrior. I'm going to get to the conclusion here. We've got to make sure we have enough time here. Jephthah was an outcast, son of a prostitute, mighty warrior, surrounded himself with worthless men, was a smooth talker, made a, a tragic vow, burned his daughter in the fire. Now, is he epitome of a good guy? What picture is Judge's painting of this man? But in the midst of all this, he's actually defeated the Ammonites. So temporarily, a pagan power's been defeated. But as I said last week, sometimes Israel's problems come from within, and sometimes they come from without. Sometimes it's the pagan nations coming. Sometimes it's the tribes fighting among each other. And so now he has to deal with Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, which is an internal struggle. So let's go into chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 12, 1 through 8. And um, I've got to see how many more pages I've got here. We've got 20 minutes. Okay, I think we can do it. All right. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over with you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, Oh, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You're fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say, Shiboleth. And he said, Siboleth. 
for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileite died and was buried in a city of Gilead. Okay. Geographically here, let me just kind of explain this. Geographically, this is a jealousy war between east and west. Jephthah represented the Gileadites who were on the west side of the Jordan River. The Ephraimites were on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, if you remember a map of Israel, Jordan River right in the middle, right? Okay. See the, the, the Dead Sea at the bottom. Sea of Galilee, Jordan River. Okay. So there's this war going on. And the Ephraimites are upset. They, they come to Jephthah and like, oh, how come you didn't call us to come out and fight against the Ammonites? You left us out. How come you didn't come? We're so mad at you, Jephthah, we're going to burn your house down. Okay. Now, Jephthah is a smooth talker, isn't he? He's always trying to negotiate his way out. What's his mouth? His mouth either gets him in trouble or it helps him. So what's his argument to the Ephraimites? What does he say to them? You, you Ephraimites didn't call or didn't come when I called you the first time. I called you. We summoned you to arms and you didn't come. Now, question. We don't know if this is true or not. <laughs> Could have been he's just making this up on the fly. We, we, we dialed you up and called you, but you never showed up. So don't blame us. We called you. And then secondly, he says, well, you know, we called you and didn't come, but since you didn't come... Hey, I'm the most valiant warrior in Israel, and I'm this courageous guy. I, I took matters into my own hands, and I beat the Ammonites without you. So we really didn't need you because I'm, I'm all that. And then, number three, he says, oh, yeah, God was on our side. Now, did Jephthah really care about whether God was on his side? What's Jephthah trying to do? He's trying to look good in front of them. And then, ultimately, what does he say? How dare you threaten my leadership? I'm actually the ruler over Israel. I mean, you see all this in verse 3. You have no right to fight against me. Now, Ephraim's response in verse 4, you see that they throw racial slurs at the Gileadites. What do they call them? You guys are fugitives. Now, this would have hit a sore spot with Jephthah because what was Jephthah's past? He was a son of a prostitute. He was a fugitive. He was forced to live with his, these um, worthless men. So they knew that was Jephthah's background. So they're, they're like, you're fugitives. And then so here's the Jordan River issue. Okay? Jordan River splits east and west in Israel. The Ephraimites were not allowed to pass. How would you know you were an Ephraimite? They said y'all as opposed to you guys. No, I'm just, I mean, what is, I mean here, here's how they figured it out. Here, what's the password? Shibboleth. And what'd they say? Siboleth. No, it's Shibboleth. And you guys are saying Siboleth. And so what ended up happening? Those that said Siboleth instead of Shibboleth, 42,000 of them, or what was it? 4, 000, yeah, 42,000 of them died. Okay. Weird story, right? You're like, okay, what does this teach me besides being ultimately depressed? What are the implications of the Jephthah narrative? What's the implications? 
Number one, he himself was a self-centered, brutal man who did not put the nation of Israel first. Who was Jephthah most concerned about? Jephthah. I'm a valiant warrior. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to bargain with God. I'm going to kill my own daughter. Now, we've seen a lot of low points in Israel's history. But up to this point in the book of Judges, is this not the lowest point? How much lower can you get with a leader of Israel killing his own daughter in a fire? You can't get much lower than that. Now, what has been Jephthah's identity that we were introduced from the very beginning? How was he introduced? He was the son of a prostitute. His identity, this is number two, his identity as the son of a prostitute mirrors or symbolizes the spiritual prostitution of Israel who hoard after foreign gods. There, 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 there's no lower place you can go. Now, I want you to think about Jephthah. Does Jephthah know his father? Who was Jephthah's mother? Prostitute. Did Jephthah have any kids? One. Did she survive? Jephthah doesn't know his mom. Jephthah doesn't know his dad. And Jephthah has no progeny. What's really important in Israel? Lineage. As leader of Israel, and this, is, this kind of mirrors the spiritual idolatry, he had no understanding of why lineage is so important in Israel. There's no sense of community. There's no sense of preserving the heritage, the covenant of being God's people. Here's the sad thing about Jephthah. Now, we're not going to blame him as a victim, but here's the sad thing. He did not learn from his father. He did not learn from his mother. And he died without any offspring as he killed his own daughter. Here's what Jephthah shows us. The importance of spiritual fatherhood. Here's a huge question we've got to ask. Why is being a spiritual father, whether you're a literal father or grandfather or a spiritual father or mentor, why is fatherhood so important in both leading families and churches? It's very, very important. So number one, he was a self-centered, brutal man. Number two, his being the son of a prostitute mirrors Israel's prostitution. And number three, he shows the importance of lack of any type of spiritual mentoring. And I guess that was sort of 2.2.2.a. 2. 2. So three, God has been eerily silent in chapters 11 through 13. So here's my question I want to leave us with tonight. Where are the spiritual leaders in Israel? Mm 
And I'm going to keep coming back to this. Where are the priests? Have we ever met, have we seen a priest yet? Anywhere in Judges. Show me a priest. We'll get to one later on. Chapter 19. At this point in the book of Judges, where are the priests and why aren't they discipling and teaching the people? What was the role of the priests? To go out into the clans, to go out in the villages, to teach the people the law of God. Where are the priests? Why aren't they teaching the law of God? And who are they supposed to especially be teaching them to? Fathers. So here's the second question. Where are the fathers? And why aren't they discipling and teaching their children? Where are the male priests? And where are the dads in Israel? And this chapter shows us they're absent. So here's the bottom line. When men abdicate or give up their roles as spiritual leaders, both in the home and in the church, the people, the family, spiral into idolatry, sin, and disunity. Now, there are exceptions But the general principle is this. When men aren't leading their homes and men aren't leading the church, there is, for lack of a better word, chaos. And let me just ask you a question. Is not this epidemic ruining our nation? Did it ruin Israel? So if anything, this chapter or these chapters show us that pastors and spiritual leaders, we're not priests anymore, but pastors and spiritual leaders need to take our responsibility of teaching and mentoring and discipling the people. Fathers and grandfathers need to take the responsibility of mentoring and teaching their families. And here's the problem. What do you do if you don't have a dad in your home? What do you do if you're a single mom? Well, unfortunately, you have to take that role. If the father's not around, you have to assume that role of being the spiritual leader. And you, you get the help of the church and you get the discipleship of the church and, and the ministries. And, and unfortunately, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But, you know, sometimes single moms have got to pick up the slack. And, and that's, a, that's a really hard place for them to be in. Um, and so we need to pray for the men in our churches, the men in our communities, the men in our families, uh, that they would be the spiritual leaders. Because Jephthah is a picture of a man that didn't have a father and a man that brutalized his daughter. And basically, it shows the lowest point in Israel's history up to this point. You can't think it can get any worse, but it ends up getting worse. 